And those motivations can all have positive effects in our life. But there's a potential downside to that as well. Forward thinkers, you know, those always focused on the future, are sometimes never satisfied with the present. Never content with their station in life. Always wanting more. Always expecting more from their, themselves and from others. And sometimes we can be very low on grace. Because we expect everyone around us to think the same way that we do. Pop psychology describes that as a type A personality, right? Why can't that person get their act together? Why can't they see what I see? Why aren't they as committed to this as I am? I, you know, I wish people cared half as much as I do about what, whatever we're working on. And if we're not careful, those feelings left to sort of simmer inside of us can produce a real selfish arrogance that is very displeasing to the Lord. We can sometimes justify our behavior by believing or telling ourselves that we're just working really hard to make everyone around us better. But the truth is we could be stunting others' growth, particularly in the spiritual sense. And understand it's good to spur others on toward excellence. We need to have standards and expectations for ourselves and, and for our spouses and our children. But those expectations must be bathed in, completely submerged, surrounded and covered in love and grace. And I believe that in many cases, this attitude, this posture toward discontentment and, and the constant drive toward the next thing is born out of a misplaced focus on a destination rather than on our destiny. And those can be two very different things. So that's what we're going to talk about today. For the past three months, with a few breaks in between, we've been working through our sermon series entitled The Journey. We've been following Moses around and paralleling his life, his journey with our own. And so today we're finishing up this series with a final installment and we're talking about destiny. I wouldn't necessarily describe Moses as a forward-thinking, driven, you know, type A kind of guy. Maybe he was, but he doesn't seem that way to me when I, when I read about his life. He didn't even want to go on the journey to begin with, right? He, he argued with God about it way back at the burning bush. And maybe that's part of the reason that he seemingly handled the news that he was never going to make it to the promised land so well, at least as, as far as we can tell by reading this account that we're going to be looking at today. Because to me, I can't imagine having gone through everything that Moses went through in his life, all the hardship, all of the effort, all the sacrifice and danger and, and years spent laboring for and leading a nation of people that never seemed to appreciate it much, only to find out that you're not going to make it to the place that you've had your sights set on the entire time. At the burning bush, when all of this first started, Moses receives his calling from God, the grand purpose for his life. God paints this big picture for Moses, and he says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Exodus 3, 7 through 10. Okay, so, so here is the calling from God to Moses. You will lead my people out of Egypt. He says that to Moses right after he describes this amazingly wonderful place that they're going to end up in. And even though God never actually says here that you, Moses, will enter the land with them, because of course God knows the future, there's still an obvious implication here for Moses that he's going to lead these people into this wonderful place. So why didn't God tell Moses right then and there at the burning bush? That he wasn't actually going to make it into the promised land. I have to believe, given the fact that Moses was already resistant to begin with, to answering the call of God, he was already arguing with God, that he may have never agreed to answer the call if he'd known the ultimate outcome for himself. Think about that. If God had called Moses at the burning bush, and, and Moses obviously was already aware of the danger and difficulty that he was facing in this task, which is obvious based on his reticence to answer the call, is pushing back at God. If God had said at that moment, hey, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt and, and deal with Pharaoh and deal with wandering in the wilderness and deal with hunger and deal with thirst and deal with enemies from without and from within. And, and by the way, you'll be hated at times by your own people, rarely appreciated Overworked and underpaid. You know, all that. Oh, and by the way, after it's all said and done, you're never actually going to make it to the promised land in your lifetime. Can you imagine what Moses, what his response would have been then? I think about that. I think maybe he would have just put his sandals back on and ran the other direction. Wouldn't you? Who wouldn't do that? The truth is, if any of us knew everything that was going to happen to us throughout our lives once we answered the call of God, I don't know that we'd answer the call. Because it isn't always easy, is it? Sometimes it's very difficult. And sometimes it's daunting. So I believe that God doesn't always give us the whole picture from day one because he knows we'd probably put our Nikes back on and run the other way. Some of us do better with this than others. I understand. I've met some of you. Some seem to be able to live in the now more than other people do. Others like me who tend to always be thinking about the end game, the way it's going to be in the future. And I'm just being honest with you. It's the way my mind works. This is the difference between Moses and the people of Israel. And it's the subject of our message today. Throughout their journey, the Israelites were focused on a destination. Moses was focused on his destiny. Two very different things. And I just want to point out here before we read that this entire message is in the context of our lives here on earth, okay? Clearly we have an eternal destination and we're instructed in scripture to look ahead expectantly to our heavenly destination with Christ and ultimately to our eternal dwelling with him when, when the new heaven and earth are prepared for us. So I'm not a, attempting to negate any of that. This discussion today is all about this life on earth and how we choose to spend it while we're still here, okay? Let's turn to Numbers, if you have your Bible, chapter 20. We'll put it on the screen. 
Numbers chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 2 through 12. We'll break it up a little bit here. The Israelites are marching from Kadesh to the plains of Moab, and they're getting close to entering the land of Canaan, the promised land. And as a side note, Miriam has just died, which was a watershed moment for the Israelites, a turning point. Okay, later in the same year, Aaron and Moses would both die. So this is the beginning of the end for the old guard, the end of the, of the generation that could not enter Canaan. And the scriptures begin to look forward to the new leadership that's coming for Israel. And Miriam, who's the first of the old guard to die, was such an important figure in Israel. She preserved Moses' life more than once. She was, of course, his sister. She was a prophetess. And though far from perfect, she was clearly the leading woman of Israel. And I just find it interesting that the leading woman of the New Testament was also named Miriam, or Mary as it is pronounced in English, same name. So that's just a side note. But this is obviously a very trying time for Moses. There must have been plenty of stress with all that he's dealing with here. And after going through so much incredible difficulty bearing the burden of all of these Hebrew people for years and putting up with their unfair treatment of him. All this time, Moses finds out that he's not even going to have the satisfaction of making it to the promised land. Let's read Numbers 20, verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. Well, that's a real shocker. It seems like no matter what happens, the moment the Hebrews realize that their lives aren't going according to their plan, they turn on Moses. We've seen it throughout this series time and time again. Can you imagine the stress that he must have been under? Let's continue. Verse 3. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Okay? Notice the contrast here that the Israelites make between the destination, the promised land that flows with milk and honey, and the place where they are now. It's an evil place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There isn't even any water. For the Israelites, everything is a comparison with either the land that they came from or the place that they're headed to. It's all about a destination for them. They, they seem to have absolutely no use for the place where they're living right now at any given time. There are a couple million of them in this group of people traveling through the wilderness. A couple of million Surely somebody can go dig a well, right? There are obviously enough able-bodied individuals to put forth some kind of effort to thrive where they are. But instead, they whine and complain because all they can think about is this destination. This expectation that one day, somewhere in the future, I'll have that life that I've always dreamed of. And until then... I will not be satisfied. I will not be content. And I will not be happy. Not, not until I reach that ultimate destination. And I, I kind of believe that many of us are plagued with this same kind of thinking. 
Rather than seeking ways to thrive in our current situation, thanking God for all that he's blessed us with and doing all that we can to serve him right where we are, sometimes we complain, don't we? And we're discontent and we grumble about our situation and we, we can accomplish little for Christ in that. I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of thinking, man, someday when the church is, you know, this size, fill in the blank, and, and we have this many people, and, and the facility is bigger and newer and nicer, and man, then we can really get something done. There will be no stopping us then. That is destination thinking. And it can get us into a really unhealthy pattern if we're not careful, because while we're so inundated with thinking about some future destination... We can miss out on what God is doing in front of us right now. This church is where it is right now for a very specific purpose. Specifically for many purposes. They're all sitting in the pews in front of me. I can't afford to miss that. Because I'm thinking about some future version of this. I have to engage in the present. The now. Why? Because you're not a destination in my life. You're my destiny. You're my calling. You're my purpose. You're my today. You're the reason God put me here right now. So tomorrow will take care of itself. When? Probably tomorrow. I have to focus on the right now. Do I think this church will always be how it is? I don't know. Probably not. Do I want the church to grow? Of course I do. Do I have a vision for a, a, a grand future? Sure I do. All of that, that's his job. Jesus builds the church. Paul said, I plant, Apollos watered, but only God can give the growth. Right? That's his job. Think about your own life. How many of you can relate to this kind of thinking? When I, when I finally get that job that I'm really suited for, then I'll really be able to shine. Then I'll, then I'll really be able to live the life that God intended for me. That's destination thinking. What if instead we thought, you know, even though this isn't my dream job, even though this isn't ideal, I can't use all the talents that God gave me to the fullest with this job. I'm sure going to try to be the best I can right here, right now. You know, there may not be any water, but I can start digging a well. That's destiny thinking. I hear people say, yeah, once my marriage is where it needs to be, once my family is functioning like it should, once we move into the house that will serve our family better, once I get some of this off my plate, then I can really pour myself into the ministry. Once I get it together financially, then I can really get some things done. This is destination thinking. It's good to have goals. Don't get me wrong. It's good to work toward things. We should do that. But we can't live there. It's destination thinking, and it can paralyze us into believing that we can never flourish. We can never truly be productive. We can never be content. We can never be full of joy until we arrive at some place, if we could just get there. But I think one of the lessons that we need to learn from Moses' life is that you're already there. God has you where you are right now for a very specific reason. Don't miss it. Don't let it go by and miss the purpose that he has for you, right where you are today. And Moses seemed to understand this, because instead of walking away from the calling, even after he found out that his destination wasn't the promised land, he stayed the course. 
Let's continue in our text, verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. At first glance, I always thought this was a pretty harsh judgment against Moses. Obviously he was angry, given his address to the Israelites. Here now, you rebels. He's obviously angry. But he struck the rock with his staff and water came out. This is exactly what God instructed him to do before in Exodus chapter 17 verse 6. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Where God told Moses to strike the rock with his staff and water would come out. So what's the big deal? We looked also a couple of weeks ago at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Where Paul explains that the rock, referring to, to Exodus was actually Jesus Christ himself. I'll read it. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, the cloud, and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Keeping that in mind, and then looking at this passage in Numbers a little closer, the reason for the harsh judgment on Moses becomes a bit clearer. First of all, God didn't tell Moses to strike the rock this time. In verse 8, he tells Moses, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle, okay? The instruction this time was to speak directly to the rock and it would yield water. So Moses, who up to now has followed God's instruction to the letter every time, he's now acting in direct disobedience. Furthermore, understanding that the rock was probably Jesus Christ himself, the fact that Moses strikes the rock twice in anger with his staff is a direct manifestation of anger against God himself. That's a big deal. This is why God deals so harshly with Moses. As Christians and leaders, when we direct and teach and lead others, we're held to a higher standard by God, like it or not. Luke explains 1248, Jesus explains in Luke 1248, he says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Okay? Moses was expected to be obedient. Much the same for Aaron and his sons. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, where they made offering to the, to the Lord, Aaron's sons, in a way other than how he taught them. What happened? They were instantly killed. God is full of mercy and grace, without a doubt. And I'm profoundly thankful for that in my own life. I need it every day. But he's also holy. And we can't take that lightly. And we can't 
violate his holiness and expect there to never be any effect from that. And this really leads to an entirely different discussion about reverence and holiness, and we'll reserve that for another day. But I'll just say that respect and reverence for the things of God, the church, uh, prayer, worship, scripture, is as important today as it has ever been. Despite our culture that has become so casual about everything and has somehow confused respect for authority and holiness and reverence with legalism. Those are completely different things. I recently heard Judd Wilhite say, if you don't love the church, then you forfeit the right to critique her or try and make her better. I completely agree. It has become so acceptable in our culture to slam the church and say every kind of slight, coarse joke, critical statement, even by some Christians. And I see it in places like Facebook. It breaks my heart. I'm telling you, it's not so easy to be disrespectful and arrogant towards something or someone that you truly love. And when correction does come, and when it needs to come, it should always come out of a heart of love, not out of a heart of irreverence, okay? The church is the bride of Christ. He died for her. The least that we can do is be respectful in our discourse about her. This is obviously a very personal subject for me. And we'll get back to the point. So let's get back to Moses. But I just felt I wanted to say that. None of you are guilty of that, by the way. You're all sitting here. You're good church folks. But we need to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I see it from people that I, that I actually have relationship with, I have like nine gazillion friends on Facebook. Right? Most of them are people that I know, but I don't really know well. But when someone that I know well enough to have a, a personal chat with says something about the church on a public forum, I'll often privately message them and say, hey, you know, I don't want to have this out in front of the world. They don't need to see us fighting, but Jesus died for the church. Do you really think it's, it's the best thing for us to throw her under the bus in front of the rest of the world who's watching? So I'll get off of that now. That's my soapbox. Moses, he messed up here royally, okay? And he pays the price. God says, you will not step foot in the promised land because of your disobedience and disregard for my holiness. Now, at this point, I would almost expect Moses to drop his staff, gather up his wife and family and personal belongings and say, okay, I guess my work here is done. I'm headed, I'm headed back to Midian to live out the rest of my life with family who loves me, a good job and a comfortable life, right? Why bother continuing on at this point? I messed up, I admit it, and now the destination, the, the whole reason I've been at this for the past 40 freaking years has been taken away from me. So I'm taking my stuff and I'm going home. Good luck, Hebrew people. (laughs) That seems like the logical thing to do, right? But of course, Moses, who always makes me feel bad about myself, that's not what he does. Why? Why does he stay with it? Because he was never focused on the destination to begin with. 
He's focused on his destiny, which is to lead these ungrateful, uncooperative, belligerent, obstinate people that he loves so much. Moses understood that his life, his destiny, wasn't about himself. It was about giving himself away to others. That isn't a destination. That's a destiny. And it sounds a lot like someone else we read about, doesn't it? Jesus Christ. He came to the earth to live and die for others. He didn't live for some destination on this earth. He lived for you and me. Just as Moses lived for the Israelites and not for himself. Do you understand that this is the model that we are to live by? It was never about a destination. And it never will be in this lifetime. It is and it has always been about a destiny that is rooted in each one of us living for one another as we live for Christ. Surely if you're a parent you get this. Right? Our lives are not our own. We live to spend ourselves for each other, for these little ones that can't lead themselves, for our neighbors who are hurting, for our church family, some of whom are really struggling, maybe weak right now, in need of encouragement. This is our destiny, to live for each other as we live for Christ. Forget about some earthly destination somewhere in the future. It was never about that anyway. Jesus will lead us to wherever he's leading us to. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Moses seemed to get that. And he left a great Old Testament example for us to follow. Let's jump ahead to Numbers 27. And we'll read just a few verses starting on, on verse 12. Numbers 27, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Avarim and see the land that I have given the people of Israel. When you've seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. In other words, you're going to die. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Sin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah and Kadesh in the wilderness of Sin. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, this is his response, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. I just find it absolutely amazing that right after God reminds Moses here that he is not going to make it to the promised land, what seemed to be the destination for this entire journey, that instead of complaining, instead of crying, instead of whining and lamenting and feeling sorry for himself, instead of begging God to reconsider, instead of any concern for himself, the first words out of Moses' mouth, which is in keeping with his character, is concern for the people. He says, let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation so they won't be sheep with no shepherd. God reminds Moses that he doesn't get to enter this wonderful place that they've been marching toward for 40 years. He also explains to Moses that you're about to die and Moses responds with concern for the Israelites. The last thing on his mind 
is a destination for himself. He's just worried about the Israelites. Astounding. That's astounding. Moses knew that his ultimate destination was with the Father. He knew that it was never about an earthly destination because he understood that his destiny was to live for the Father as he lived for others. And, and by the way, there, there was no greater outcome, no greater product of Moses' destiny than Joshua, who was by Moses' side throughout most of the journey. You never know who will be most affected by your life, but chances are those most shaped by your actions your decisions, those most profoundly affected by your life are those people who are closest to you. Your kids, your spouse, your church family. Those people who are around you, who are a part of your life on a daily basis. You want to know what your destiny is in this life? Look at the faces of those people that you live with you work with, those people that you worship with and minister with, that is your destiny. That is your destiny. Now then, let's finish this journey with Moses. In the first seven verses of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, I'll just read it quickly and, and we'll be done. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan and Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him, God buried him, in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Don't you want to finish well? Moses finished well. He, he never made it to that new job, that new house, that new position, a new station in life. He, never, he was never respected as he should have been. He never saw the people that he spent his life serving actually get it. He never really saw them like graduate. But Moses fulfilled his destiny. He led God's people. He, he discipled and mentored a young man, Joshua, who would go on to do great things for God. He showed the world that God was greater than anything or anyone else. And he loved God and those that he lived with more than he loved himself. He made plenty of mistakes along the way, without a doubt. But Moses fulfilled his destiny and he finished well. Listen, we all have a fixed amount of days on this earth. Our final destination is eternity with Christ. But our destiny is to live on this earth loving God and each other as we serve God and each other. Rather than living our lives fixated on some earthly destination, let's fix our eyes on Christ and see where that takes us. 
We may never make it to the land flowing with milk and honey, but we'll change the world for Christ. We'll inspire others to do great things for God. We'll build the congregation, the church of Jesus Christ, and we'll fulfill our destiny. A legacy of people who know how to live for Christ because they've watched us do it. It's like Joshua and Moses. This journey is all about destiny. And our destiny is completely wrapped up in how we affect the lives of those around us for Jesus Christ. Let's make the most of it, okay? Shall we? Let's make the most of it. Let's pray.